Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Welcome to the after party. It's time to change. You're just getting started. You can teach an old dog new ways and not just on Saturday. Hey, you guys, it's Anna David with After Party Pod. How are you? We are really getting close to the holidays. We're in it. I mean, you could say we are in it. And I'm wondering how you all are doing. It can be a rough time. I mean, we sort of talked about this, meaning, you know, I talked about it in the intro last week. I think I've forgotten to say this is the podcast all about addiction and recovery. And if you are new to the show, Welcome. So happy to have you. Pull up a chair. It's an after party. Remember after parties? I I don't know. Late nights, they were also called. (sighs) They were messy. I don't know. I used to hang out with this guy. I mean, whatever. This guy was part of our group of friends back when I actually partied with a lot of people as opposed to that, you know, just with cats alone in my apartment with cocaine and cigarettes. And he also, all he said, like the the sentence he said more than any other sentence was, where are we partying late night? He always said it like that a little bit. Anyway, um, I don't, I was just thinking, you know, before I pressed record here that I don't have anything to really meander or rant or, or say anything about, which maybe good, maybe bad. I thought, you know, it's sort of like speaking if, if you're, you know, in a program and you speak at meetings and, and they tell you not to prepare um, anything. And I'm, I'm actually good at that. For, for whatever reason, I don't get nervous and I just sort of can do that. And so I was thinking when I pressed record on this, why don't I just do that? Not, not that I actually prepare things um, normally, but I mean, I sort of will think for a second, oh, you've got this going on. You could talk about that. Um, but I didn't do that. I mean, I, th- I thought to myself, that's redundant. I thought, what do you have going on to talk about? And I thought, nothing that I didn't talk about the other day when I recorded the other intro. So let's just get to the guest. His name is Patrick O'Neill. People who read the site, are this podcast accompanying site, After Party Chat, will probably be familiar with his work. Uh, he, he's written about 10 essays for us and they are all fantastic. He's written about, uh, being a straight male rocker who has an eating disorder. He has written, um, he wrote this incredibly poignant, beautiful piece about, uh, watching his mother detox. And we actually, I managed to get that republished on Salon. Hoorays. He's a really talented guy. He has a memoir coming out next year called Gun Needle Spoon. It has already come out in French. If we have any French listeners, Parisian listeners, you know, I do think that that's possible given, I'll tell you, the year before I got sober, I went to Paris 
which sounds super glamorous. I went, it was 1999, and my mother and my stepfather did a house trade with a family that lit, that had uh, a place in Paris. And so we went there, and I managed to, I got there one night early, and in that one night, I managed to find... You know that radar, if you, do, if you do drugs, if you did drugs, you know how to walk into an establishment, and particularly a bar club, and go, okay, radar tuned, who does drugs here? Okay, that guy. And then you manage to sort of get in a conversation with that person, and then you manage to ask about, about um, the drug availability in this given city. And this person that I asked, I was, it turned out I was, I was attracted to him a little bit. And I mean, I was attracted to him. Yeah, I guess more than a little bit. And he said, oh, you know, buying Coke in Paris is very, very expensive. You don't want to do that. Uh, just hang out with me and my friends. Uh, you know, we got plenty. And this was all in French, rest assured, because he didn't speak any English. Uh, and, and I, before I got sober, spoke French pretty well. With the I don't know the liquid courage or the cocaine courage I, I could do it um, I could do it in a way that I could communicate with these people none of them thought I was French or even thought I was good at all at French but at speaking it but anyway I ended up hanging out with these people and it was a decadent but seedy crowd and my point is the cocaine and cocaine the cocaine <laughs> in France or Paris was like the purest thing ever. And, and so I, I, I don't know. I'm just saying we could have French listeners. Anyway, his book came out in France. Uh, I don't actually have the French name in front of me, but uh, yeah. And it chronicles his life, which has been crazy. Uh, you're about to hear all about it. But a uh, heroin addict who ended up robbing banks to support his habit, going to jail, uh, and getting out, he's sober um, almost 14 years, and uh, is a writer and a musician, and um, a, a very interesting guy. He lives here in Hollywood, and he teaches writing at various colleges, and um, what else? He writes for After Party Chat, and I think you are going to find him fascinating. So, please give it up for Patrick O'Neill. I first started taking drugs by chewing blocks of hash. Oh my god, I think my copy has like blood stains on it from shooting up while reading it. Party animal, I hate to say that because that makes me sound Paris Hilton. I was on the, as right. I call it, the Autobahn to nowhere. I'm very lucky because would you have wanted to have a celebrity junkie for a dad? Just starting, especially with you laughing. Yeah, Look yeah. how much fun we're having already. Exactly. Um, so this is the first time we're meeting, which is exciting for me because we have been communicating for six, six months. months? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you were one of the only success stories that I had from that Facebook post. <laughs> really? Well, yeah. So it's like I put up this Facebook post, which is a high risk thing to do if you're looking for writers. Yeah. And just like, oh, hey, anybody out there write about addiction and recovery? And, you know, everybody thinks they're a writer. True. If you're listening and, and this, I'm not talking about you and you were one, but like, you know, a lot of people wrote me their, you know, their sort of journal entries and stuff like that. And, we, and they weren't right. And so you, so I'm, I'm, I was highly skeptical of anybody working I, I out. I believe it. Four, and four steps are not, uh, uh, are not reading material a lot of they're times. They're not. They're not. And it's wonderful that in recovery, we all write a lot, but that doesn't mean it should 
should go right. on the site. And I, right. I think I'm, I'm discriminating maybe to a fault about what I like and what I want to run. Right. And so, yeah, and you, I guess your first piece that you turned in was Fat Boy. It was Fat Boy, yeah. 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 And that was amazing. It was a it was a different thing for me to write. I've never I, you you were the first person, the first uh, publication the, I've ever written about uh, bulimia about. You know, and what made you want to be? Or what made you ready to write I've been, about it? I've been ta- I've been I've been I've been talking about doing it for a long time. Yeah, and, uh, that was all it was was talk. And, yeah, uh, given the opportunity and throw it on a website where it that's sort of like accepted and it was okay. Yeah, and it wasn't like you know here's my weird essay on bulimia for some other like journal or something. Right, like that. right, right. I could throw it out there, and then uh, for some reason it just flowed that day. It just flowed like effortlessly. Right. You know, and it was just like cool. I'm gonna. Do this, and then you wrote a follow up that somebody start. Yeah. So people, yeah. how, what was the feedback? So here you are, a straight rocker dude, right? Writing about how you've been bulimic, right? And how you struggle with food issues, which is not something I always talk about at meetings either. It's, right? It's, it's like part of the image that oh, do I want to? Do I want to put that out there? Do I yeah. not want to put it out there? And oddly enough, I, I got a reaction, not a good one, from somebody at a meeting that I was kind of amazed could even read. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so so your theory that alcoholics are you don't buy into alcoholics are smarter than other people. I I think we're more sensitive than other people. Yeah, I think that's for sure. Are they are they smarter? Maybe the ones in recovery are. You Except know that one guy. Except that one guy. <laughs> and to be perfectly honest, he wasn't an alcoholic. Oh really? No, he's a method. Oh, oh, so do you think addicts, do you differentiate between addicts and alcoholics? I think a lot of drugs do a lot more damage to the brain than other drugs do. Yeah. I think amphetamines and cocaine stimulants really do because it, it well, it's technically they know this, it, it, it hotwires the brain and you really have a hard time coming back and prolonged use of maybe 20 years of shooting meth yeah. might sort of uh, uh, Or l- let's brain. say less of even 20. I mean, there are articles out there. Right. About, I think we've even run one about you know meth is the most dangerous in terms of long term, especially what is the meth you're getting? That, that's yeah, like that. Now, not as good as heroin, which we just the best drug in the world, <laughs> right? You you sure thought so? Well, I did it once. I snorted it, and oh, it yeah, was yeah. heaven on earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the reality is, whatever drug it is out there, it worked at one time for oh. whatever it did. Yeah, and it worked better than anything else we ever found. Till at that point, as always, they do. It, yeah, it, it turns on you. It doesn't work anymore. Right. You know? But heroin was the most uh, strongest thing I could find out there to make me feel human, kind of. So okay, so let's take it back. Mm-hmm. Where are you from? Uh, I was born in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and my father's a linguist. He, uh, he teaches language. At, he's at MIT. He was at MIT. He's, he's uh, retired. Uh, and so we traveled around the world and the country going to different schools where he was having teaching assignments and different countries where he wanted to learn the language. Mm-hmm. So I was a kid in Iceland, in the Faroe Islands, and Denmark. And, wow. uh, and I was the new kid on the block. I didn't speak the language. A total alienation. And then every other year we moved somewhere else like... Durham, North Carolina, Eugene, Oregon, Arlington, Massachusetts, you know, just boom, 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 boom. That was my life. And do you have siblings? I have two. I have a younger and an older sister. Were they around? Well, so the older yeah. sister was yeah. around for that. Yes, yes. So a lot of times when we were in, like, the Faroe Islands, which is an island between Iceland and Denmark in the North Sea, where they speak Faroese, it's the weirdest language in the world, it has no origin. Yeah. It's just me and my sister. That's it. 
Well, at least they were there, right? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I That's mean, the beauty about it. We were very close. We're still close this day. Right. Know? So that was my childhood. But alienation from a young age, you know, yeah. always there, totally there. And so the food issues, they started before the drug issues? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's almost simultaneously. But what was going on was, you know, like just not to be an armchair therapist, but uh, uh, my, parents, my, <laughs> my parents my uh, parents had a really messy, horrible divorce. Yeah. And uh, my mom was devastated, and she had a lot of emotional problems and uh, uh, I took them personally you mm-hmm. know and it was very hard and uh, uh, at that point I, I was I was a little overweight as a kid and mm-hmm. I, I, I felt like an unwanted fat kid mm-hmm. and at that point there was the lure of the streets I was in Boston mm-hmm. uh, and there was like a lot of uh, pe- drugs and hippies in the 60s and so on and so forth mm-hmm. and uh, uh, that's we both went hand in hand mm-hmm. at, that, at that point you know? and so how did it start uh, I would I would eat to console my feelings. My, my the, the bottom line is my mom attempted suicide, mm-hmm. and I had the feeling that uh, uh, I was, was unwanted. Father. I was my, my father didn't want me. My mom didn't want to live to be my mother. Right. You know, I felt that I was an unwanted fat kid that that, that they nobody loved, mm-hmm. and I would stuff my feelings and mm-hmm. sit for the TV set and just stuff stuff like uh, tons of food, and then it evolved to me throwing up, mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, and that just, it, I mean, and like I said before, I didn't even know there was a name for it in those days. I wasn't practicing bulimia. Right. It was like 60, in the 60s, you know, 12 year old, no one said you have bulimia. And it right. was a boy, too, on top of it all. So it's very confusing, you know, what's going on there. And I really had no one, anybody to talk to. It was my dirty little secret for a long time. You know? Were you conscious of the fact that you were stuffing your feelings or not really? Uh, I knew that I felt kind of better as in like that this is an odd adjective but I but I'm not adjective but odd reference but as you're helping some other people you, it takes you off your mind as I'm stuffing my face it takes me off my problems you know that's, See, that's kind of interesting things. yeah yeah um, I don't know that I ever experienced well I mean I think in the beginning of cocaine but then it only exacerbated those feelings mm-hmm and with food, I, I, I think I'm lucky enough to beat myself up as I'm doing it. Right. right. So it stops me in really? the path. Yeah. 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 I, 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 just, I still, this day, I still struggle with the shame and guilt. And like now that I, now I've sort of got a handle on it, I'm still struggling with it. The smallest thing will throw me into the throes of you're a loser, you're bad, you did the wrong thing, you know? Yeah. Thankfully, I do. I am in a twelve-step program. I can talk to my sponsor. I can uh, do. I can do. I can write about. It. I can do a lot of things. I can publish things on after-party chat. I can put it out there, and that's the most freeing. Was able to throw it out there like that because you know I never talked to my family about this. I mean, they of course sort of know, but I don't go to my father and say I got an eating disorder. Like yeah, like you know, have a donut. Shut up. You yeah. Know? Do they read your stuff? <laughs> Uh, my father does. My father mm-hmm. used to be my editor. He, he edited my uh, first book. Wow. Uh, but uh, my mom doesn't read anything. Yeah. She doesn't want to hear it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, probably good she didn't read that beautiful piece you wrote for us. Oh. The one, that I think we republished it on Salon. On uh, Salon, the one about her, her detoxing, yeah. 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 That, might, that, that was probably... My favorite piece that we've run. Oh, thanks. That was another hard piece to write, but I thought oh, it needed yeah. to be read and it needed to be put out there. You know, that's another thing to struggle with. Is you know, I can get, go get clean, I can get my life together, and then I'm watching my mom have a problem with the same thing. It's just amazing. Yeah. You know? 
and then say, "Hey, don't do that." And, you know, it's like it's like, but it's like you know, it's like the, the revolves reversed. You know? Yeah, and yeah. Here I am years later, like, don't be a drug addict. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think also a lot of alcoholics and addicts I know grew up in situations. You know, what whatever our circumstances exacerbate alcoholism. Our circumstances in our formative years, right? I believe, right? And a lot of people grew up. Uh, with parents that they needed to take care of in some way, yeah. even in subtle ways. Yeah, absolutely. Where they felt responsible. Absolutely. Well, th- both my parents you know, could be labeled as narcissistic, you know, especially yeah. when they're younger. And, and uh, uh, it was never about it was never about me. And I don't mean to be that in a selfish yeah. way, but it was always about how I reflect. Whatever I did reflected on them. Yeah. And that that's a hard burden to carry when you're eight. Do you still feel like that? Uh, to an extent, with my mother, she's mm-hmm. not really happy. She doesn't. She won't read my book because she doesn't want to, uh, you know, hear any of it. Because in her mind, it was much smaller incidences of all of it, yeah. and uh, not so much my father. My mm-hmm. father has come to an acceptance, and uh, he's a much different person than he was when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. It's weird that they can change. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because you know, I used to think, oh, nobody can change without a twelve-step program, and even then. You right. know, who knows emotionally. Right. True. You know, and spiritually. True. See a lot of people in 12 step programs just be the same people. Yeah, yeah, and it's really amazing. I have watched my parents change and get better in mm-hmm. their mm-hmm. 50s and 60s, yeah. and it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Which is what you would hope. I mean, you hope people would evolve. The older they get, they would you know be less uptight or, or less uh, whatever it is. They're, they're less yeah. Up, you're, you're kind of like that, but yeah. But it's so not the case. I mean, I don't know what your grandparents were like, but all mine did not get better at all. They got worse. They were super judgmental. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I had a real mean grandfather. Yeah. Oh my god, what an asshole. <laughs> to put it mildly. Yeah. Oh, I can't even think about it. Yeah. Um. But anyway, so so you were eating and throwing up and not mm. telling anybody. Right. And and how well was that working in terms of keeping you not overweight? Oh, it was horrible. Because, I mean, I have known plenty of bulimics yeah. who it is actually not no. that effective. No, it doesn't work at all. Really? It doesn't work at all? I don't think so. I, I don't, if, if you throw up to the extent that you're throwing up everything, but you're only throwing up when you eat badly. So you're like eating regularly, and at least I was in the, in the yeah. beginning. You're also eating regularly, and then when I would binge, I would throw up because that was the embarrassing, shameful part. Yeah. But I would still eat a regular. So, you know, it, and some of it's staying in you, and it's just, you know, it's just it's a horrible process, regardless. Yeah. You know, regardless not, of you know, if it's yeah, effective. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, you know, I, and I'm sure there are people that get thin doing that. There's people that amazingly thin with anorexia too I mean well that if we're going to talk the word quote unquote effective in terms of saying right underweight right right Um, so you were doing that when did you first start doing drugs well, so that's right, at, right in that same area. Mm-hmm. So, like twelve, thirteen, I was smoking pot, drinking beer, you know, and, and it was the sixty taking acid and those kind of things at a really young age. And then wasn't until I really got to art school at age seventeen that I discovered my drug of choice. Yeah, and did you start shooting it right away? Uh, pretty close. You know, I was snorting it at the beginning, and, and then people were smoking it, and then I'm just saying this is a waste, and I start shooting it. Just had. Uh, do you know Patty Powers by any chance? I could see you knowing her for some I don't reason. Think so no. She she got sober here, and she's a sober coach in mm-hmm. 
New York, and she was on the A and E, not on Intervention. They did like a spinoff thing. She's amazing. Okay. And yeah. she was talking about you know trying to get somebody to show her how to shoot up or to shoot yeah, her right, up, right? And that people just didn't want to do that, really, for obvious reasons. Oh, yeah. so you were around people who were like, cool, yeah, no we'll- problem. <laughs> Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Just do, do it. And, and then the people, who, if I couldn't do it, they would do it for me. The first time, did you do it yourself? No. I had a girlfriend that, showed, that did it for me, showed me how, and, mm-hmm. I, and I picked it up very quickly. Yeah. That. I mean, yeah. not to say that was perfect, and it was like, my arms look wonderful after that, but yeah. Right. Yeah. But nobody who's shooting up, their arms don't look wonderful. No. Even if they're no. extremely skilled. Right. Exactly. I had really good veins. You did. I really. They used to pop, pump out, and like that. Be and now they're sort of gone. Did people compliment you on them when people you were used shooting? People compliment me. What a great veins! <laughs> <laughs> you know, a little junky talk now and then. You know, what great veins do you have? There? Yeah. Hey. Yeah. yeah. So and so, how many years were you shooting up? I think it's easy to say eighteen years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I went went for, like you know the first eight years things were good. You know, I mean, you know, things were working. It was mm-hmm. exciting. It was wonderful. Bad moments in there, of course, here and there. Yeah, and then ten years of it not working. Yeah, just not working and just flogging a dead horse and running with it till the, the wheels were off. The, the car was in the gutter. Everything. Were you uh, able to work during those ten years? Uh, in the for the first first six eight years, I was uh, uh, yeah, I worked in the music industry. I, I worked a lot. I was I was all over the place. And then at some some point, uh, I basically became unhirable. Yeah, you know, uh, I got kicked off the first Lollapalooza tour, Lollapalooza tour for being too much of a junkie. And what what was your band called? Are you in several bands? Right? Uh, I was in several. I was in several bad bands, but mm-hmm. I, but they're they're like. Like there was a band in Stamsville called the Pillage People and stuff mm-hmm. like that, but mm-hmm. no, I was never any famous bands. I worked for a bunch of famous bands mm-hmm. like uh, all punk rock, Dead Kennedys, Flipper, mm-hmm. TSOL, Subhumans, that kind of stuff. We had I had D G H Polygro yeah. on good this friend podcast. of mine, absolutely, yeah, yeah. great guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so <clears throat> you got kicked off Lollapalooza, yeah. And did you say, well, this is interesting and a potential wake up call? No. Mm-hmm. No, I said, I can't believe those people, the nerve of them throwing me off. I'm amazing. Even, yeah. though I was, even though I was nodding out in the backstage and doing nothing. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, and so then what happened? When did you get to the bank robbing? Because that is my favorite. Well, I, I, I started selling drugs down here and uh, in L.A., you know, and uh, a friend of mine uh, was murdered uh, during the drug, during while, while we were selling drugs. He was selling with me. Uh-huh. And uh, I decided it was best to get out of L.A. He was murdered by somebody who was buying drugs from him, was, another dealer? He was dealer? murdered by people that he had made a deal with to buy drugs. Wow. And uh, people in Long Beach somewhere. Uh, I don't really know all the details of it. I just know that his body was found in a, a crate on a, a, a on a train track out way out in... Uh, um, um, uh, out, out, out west in the county of California, and uh, uh, they, the cops came to me because I was his best friend, and uh, it was very eye-opening. It was uh, uh, it was not good, yeah. you know. And uh, for a moment, I had a, a, a feeling like this was uh, not a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I got up and I went home to San Francisco, where I'm from. I'm from there too. Yeah, mm-hmm. you are. Yeah, and uh, uh, I went back to my family and I asked for help. And it didn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, you know, I didn't let it work. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and then I, uh, uh, 
I decided that if I could shoot speed three times a day, uh, for uh, I, I wouldn't crave heroin as much. Yeah, and my, so, was true so, probably. So it was a, it was a cure. Yeah, I wasn't strung out on heroin anymore. I was kind of Keith Richards clean. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. That kind of was okay. Yeah, and I did that for a few years, but I was really a, a junkie and, at heart. I just went back to it. And when I did speed, I was able to work and I was able to get things together, even yeah. though I was pretty crazy. But when the heroin took back over, I. Uh, I, I, I couldn't afford to be a junkie of the magnitude of which I had the habit of. Right. And that, that's when the armed robberies took in, took him to place. And so what preceded that? So in terms of illegal activity, drug dealing, was there something dealing, between that and bank robbing? Uh, shoplifting, mm-hmm. uh, ripping off other drug dealers, mm-hmm. those kind of, you know, the usual activities one does. Yeah. Uh, kind of things like that. That's sort of what I did. And uh, uh, it was a marginal, really marginal living. I couldn't quite get enough drugs to keep myself well. Mm-hmm. It was not good. And uh, I just had... It, it, it led to the mindset of, of what else can I do? How can I maintain this? And, and that, that's where uh, being a junkie became. I mean, it's being a junkie, being a, an armed robber, sort of, you know, uh, turned Natural out to be conclusion. A, well, a good idea. Cause, yeah. you, know, you know, go where the money is. Because, you know, I try, we try, you know, being the people I knew around tried robbing people's houses and things like that, but you get stuck with stuff. And then you have to take that stuff and sell it to somebody else. And it's just this long chain of things to try and get money when there's these institutions that have money, just go take it from them. Well, and and not that morality was a big deal for any of us no. at that point, but robbing people's homes, yes. did you feel worse about that? Yes, I did. And also I was really kind of worried about running into those people. I mean, it's much, it's, it's, for, this sounds kind of strange, but it's much more personal. Well, of course you know, it is. <laughs> you know, and, and the other thing is, other thing is with robbing institutions, you can say, I'm just robbing these horrible institutions yeah. that are ripping people off, and I'm not really hurting people. Yeah. I mean, I debatable. Just, debatable. Um, very debatable. Did you, you, you were using a gun when you were robbing people's homes? Yeah, absolutely. And did you ever run into them? No, I thankfully not, but we were in homes where people were in the back room asleep. I mean, we mm. were, you know, it was just, you know, it was, it, was, it was scary, it was sketchy, it was, you know, not good, and uh, just didn't, didn't, was not my forte. I was not into it. Yeah. You know, didn't like it. And so, how many banks did you rob? Well, you know, it, it, well, you know, uh, over fifty and maybe over hundred. What was your biggest take from them? So that's the thing. If you go in and just do a fast in there, take take whatever is in the teller right then and there by one person putting a gun in, in a teller's face, you're going to get from three to five to eight thousand dollars max. Yeah. So if all of you go into the bank. There's three of you and shotguns, and you take over the bank and you get all the drawers. You can get twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars, something like that, or more. And so I would say up there in the thirties thousand, but they're splitting mm-hmm. it three, four ways. Yeah. And the driver gets money. It's just doesn't crazy. seem worth it at all. Oh, it's not worth it. No. It's, but it's fast money. There, yeah, yeah. I mean, so if you had planned them, you might have been able to get more? Yeah. I mean, they, we, we planned a lot of them. I mean, being, right. being a couple of people, we really planned them. We did a lot of things. In the end, when I got arrested and busted, I wasn't planning them at all. I was just running in. Yeah. Because I was insane. I was insane at the point. I was so wrapped with uh, fear of getting busted that I was doing more drugs because I knew they were coming for me. And the truth was, they were coming for me. Yeah. And uh, I was just anxiety attacks and craziness. And uh, uh, so that, then there was no planning at that point. It was just sloppy. And you just got busted once? 
I got busted once and uh, for for an arm robbery that was went so bad. Uh, it was just incredibly bad. I mean, I, I, I wrote about that. In I think pieces. you did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, we were just we were so loaded, we were so wasted. I mean, the, the pull the guy parked the car in front of the place I robbed. The bus cut us off. We got stuck there. People saw the car. We drove home. Yeah. You know, it was just horrible. And uh, I got busted for that. But once I was busted, they sort of said, "We know who you are, mm-hmm. and we know what you've been doing." Mm-hmm. Like so, and I, you know, I, I, that's the. That last year of using and robbing is what my book's about. It was probably what my book is about. Book is coming out next year. Book is coming out in June, Gun Needle Spoon. And um, and so it is from just the bank robbing years? What is yeah. it documenting? It's it's the last year of... Uh, I, I kind of condensed all the robberies into one last year because, you know, if you just wrote about how a junkie lived, you'd be pretty repetitious and boring. Yeah. It'd be a robbery. Although I'd read it forever. Right. I, I, I can read that forever. <laughs> right. It'd be robbery, shoot, drug, shoot, drug, shoot, drug, shoot, robbery, shoot, drug. Right. So I just sort of put them all together and made it the last year and just condensed it as much as possible. And then the last half is eight years later, me mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. How long okay. are you sober? I forget. Uh, be 14 years, January 8th. You know, we have the same amount of time-ish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 But you, I don't tend to love to lead people into program talk, mm-hmm. but you are not in the same... You are... And I've gotten comments on the on the iTunes reviews that I don't have people from NA. Right, right. So you were my right. first, I believe. Yoo-hoo. Groundbreaking. So you never, yeah. So you never went to the AA. No, I went to AA in uh, in rehab. Rehab take, took, took us to AA, and I went there. And I was in San Francisco, and I had a sponsor. And I first worked my first steps in AA. Mm-hmm. And uh, just something in the language of AA and what was going on with me. Uh, at the time, uh, a lot of it had to do with the God shots and stuff like that. I was a really the horriblest sponsor you know to mankind. It's mm-hmm. hard to believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just my sponsor said, why don't you go check out NA? Why don't you go see what's going on there? And it took me a while to find an NA group that I actually like because a lot of it felt like the waiting room at San Quentin. And, like the what? Uh, like the visiting room at San Quentin. Oh, really? A lot of NA felt like that. So there's certain factions of it. I'm not trying to put down any people out there just the parts that i found were either that or something something i did something something what i finally eventually found which is a lot of people with a lot of time mm-hmm. and just sort of the language of the program speaks more to me they don't say gotcha in they in do May? they do they just say it differently you know <laughs> and i still argue about that i still argue with the capital g and the capital h for him and god and that you kind do of stuff. yeah I why really I think I think we we lose uh, understanding of what's what a, what a higher power is. We, we're naming it at that point, mm-hmm. we're, and and I, th- I think it's I think for for me as somebody that wants to argue about it, for some unknown reason probably mm-hmm. because growing up with uh, uh, the, the the that vengeful God that mm-hmm. was going to smote me for doing everything bad, I find it easier to find a God of my understanding under the higher power uh, moniker. Do you, how much religion did you grow up with? Uh, not a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, but my, enough to think of a punishing God. My mom was tried to get us into religion, and my dad was like a Marxist. Mm-hmm. And so on Sunday, when she wanted to take us to a, a Sunday school, she'd go, we're going to Sunday school. My dad would go, you know, I'm going to go hiking in the woods and have uh, hot chocolate and donuts. So what do you guys want to do? Oh, you got to decide? Yeah. And we were, yeah. woohoo! Yeah, yeah, in yeah. In the woods, hot chocolate. Yeah. And, uh, that's, and then as soon as she stopped trying to take us to Sunday school, he stopped taking us out. Oh. So you didn't have... Lots of ideas of a punishing God. Then, I, I, I just I just knew that whatever was going on that he didn't uh, he didn't accept who I was. Mm-hmm. The, the God of that understanding, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, it was it was another you know gray haired guy on the wall pointing at me. So, what is your idea of a higher power now? 
I think I th- well, yeah. For one, it's it's not judging. It's not. Yeah. Uh, it's it, it's it's more uh, uh, nurturing, mm-hmm. and it's there for me to. Uh, you know, to to help and be and be there for me. I, I had I I finally came to like a real grips with the other day, not other day, just yesterday. No, like a, like a year ago, when uh, I kept getting these visions of things that were happening uh, in my past, and they would come to me, and I would just go, "Stop bugging me! Stop! Stop! You know, making me see these things again." And I, then all of a sudden, I realized they were coincided with things that were happening in my life this time. Yeah. And it almost felt like somebody was saying, remember how this happened to you? Remember how you felt then? So if I was thinking of doing something that probably wasn't that good, you know, yeah. like something like that, there would be these shots of, here are things, you doing things that aren't that good. Remember how other people suffered and how you had to make amends and how these other things happened. Yeah. And I all of a sudden realized it wasn't just like my memory having horrible times. I felt it was more like a higher power saying, remember this. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I was like, Wow. You know, so it's not like you know a horrible vengeful. Remember this, you're horrible. No, it's a, it's it's a it's a, like a learning uh, a, a way to learn and a way to be better. And your subconscious being so brilliant that it can shove that in front of you exactly. at the opportune time. Exactly. You know. Yeah. So I mean, though, so that, that I've kind of, you know, and that took me you know twelve, thirteen years to get to that point. Yeah. You know, the thing is, I'm not saying it, it's not there. I'm not saying it is there. I'm not putting a definition on. I'm not saying it's a god with a capital G. What I'm just saying is I have to use what works for me. Like, and that's the beauty of all these programs. It's, yeah. It's your God of your understanding. Yeah. You know, uh, you know and I just, it, it, it's, it's, it's a moot argument, and it's also uh, an argument that I just, I just stay away from a lot mm-hmm. of times. That's mm-hmm. all, you know? Yeah. I, um, thank God there's not a lot of argument about that in the rooms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, over the years, I've heard very little, actually. I mean, that argument tends to take place online among the AA bashers. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, you don't yeah. see all those stories? I, mean, I don't read them. Yeah. I, don't, I just won't read them. If I, if I if hear a bench and there's this, like, you know, hey, it doesn't work, I'm like, yeah. oh, okay, we're done here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, They're pretty you know, enraging. I don't think that AA is the only answer. No. But I think it's, it's, it's an answer for a huge amount of people. And, and you know, so I, I, you can't negate it. You can't yeah. say that this, this is not a good thing. Yeah. You know, and, I, and if, if there's a... If there's a group out there making people' lives better, you why why just hey, it doesn't work, you know? Yeah. That's crazy. It's well, crazy. it I think it triggers a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it offends mm-hmm. people who try it, and unfortunately, get exposed to people that are militant or unpleasant, right. Right. And assume that that is the you know the entirety of the organization. Exactly. Exactly. And like just like when I went to the wrong NA meeting, I mean, you, you can find the wrong places. Like, there were some crazy people in San Francisco when I was coming up that were just insane. And I yeah. was like, wow, who are these people? They're insane. Yeah. And uh, uh, you know, but but it, the, I think if you're a real desire and you really look around, you're gonna you'll be all right. You know? Yeah. And obviously, we did right. We found our front desperation our niches, you know? will you know yeah. make you look. Yeah. I, I got so like I mean mm-hmm. right away. Yeah. The people I did go, you know, a couple of years before I got sober, I didn't know anything, and mm-hmm. I looked up a CA meeting online, and I and then I was on Third Street, and I was so sheltered and mm-hmm. and living mm-hmm. in such a shell yeah. that I was like Third Street, that's West Hollywood. I pictured like where Jones on Third is, and all right, of a sudden right. it didn't occur to me that Third Street went downtown, and so I'm just driving and driving and driving, and I'm getting to mm-hmm. sketchy and sketchy areas, and I'm like, well, okay, and and that meeting freaked me out. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't go back for years, and I never went to another CA meeting. Actually, oh, yeah. yeah, I mean that's the yeah, but that whole thing that there's not a bad meeting. There is. Oh yeah, there is. I've been to many. <laughs> I've been to New York, man. You know. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, but so uh, did you get sober the first time you tried? 
Uh, well, I mean, the first rehab I went to was was a uh, 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 behavior modification. Uh-huh. And uh, it, it, it wasn't 12-step, and it wasn't going to meetings, something like that. And I tried to stay clean, but I had no support, and I had nothing. But when I went to, to the, the next rehab I went to uh, was 12-step base and everything like that, and I, I stayed clean since then. <laughs> so as soon as I actually surrendered, went to a 12-step meeting, started working steps, having a sponsor, I hooked up, and it was good. What was the rehab, by the way? It was the last house on the left, Salvation Army, downtown yeah. San Francisco. Yeah, and I mean, that—that's what I had. That—that's what was yeah. left to me. You know, I just—I just, I just uh, uh, you know, and I needed that. I needed to say, hey, look, you know, this is where you're at. You know, and I was like sick, and you know, all the horrible things that happen from heroin addicts when they're detoxing. You know, trying to sh- sweep the streets in front of the building and do my little job, and I was like that, the hating life, and just you realizing. mean because you put, like when you got arrested and you were doing community service? No, no, no. I mean, I mean, there's like that they would have like in those kind of rehabs, everybody has little jobs. Oh and yeah, stuff yeah, like yeah. That. And so there I was sweeping the street in front of the building, like just like watching people in cars go to work and everybody having a wonderful life, and like I'm, I'm at the Salvation Army detox in San Francisco, across from the Stud Bar, like right. on, on, on Ninth Street, just going. My life is just this is it. And I, at that point, I just knew there was not everything up and you know there was probably other things down but I just knew there was everything was up but at the there. bottom of your disease did you ever have those flashes okay I'm running into a bank to rob it and look at all these people <laughs> going about their happy lives like that never occurred to you you know I, I no uh-huh. No, I, it, I mean there are a series of bottoms in my life that you that you could say it wasn't that good enough for you, yeah. and it wasn't apparently. Well, let's talk know. about jail. Yeah. Okay. So how long? Like, so you get busted, you get yeah. arrested. What yeah. happens? Uh, well, I get busted, I get arrested. I literally went to go open the door to my apartment, and the cops kicked it in and handcuffed me, arrested me, dragged me off, and took me took me to jail, mm-hmm. SF County. And uh, got in there, got busted, and got dragged up to the seventh floor, which is like the worst floor in the whole place, because I, I must have been a really bad criminal at that point if I'm doing armed robberies. Yeah. I got put in with all the really hardcore people, and I'm in there. Like and murderers just, and whatnot? Murderers, yeah. A lot of murderers, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. My, my celly was a mass murderer for a long time. Nice. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, and, uh, uh, and I sat there, and I fought my case for 18 months in county jail. What was your argument? Uh, well, they were trying to three-strike me. Uh-huh. They tried to three-strike me all at once, which is a bastardization on the law. And I, granted, I, I didn't do, a, I wasn't a, a solid citizen, but I wasn't what the three strikes were about. So what they were going to try and do was three-strike me, like one, two, three, all in those cases they were they were raining me on. Oh, you mean because they knew about the previous yeah. ones, but they yeah. hadn't busted you yeah. on them. So I didn't have a criminal record before that. I had uh, minor, minor skirmishes, but I never had a huge criminal record, surely not a felony before that. Yeah. And so they wanted to three-strike me. So they were offering me 25 to life, is what they kept offering me when I went up to the court. And so I was freaking out about that. And I finally got a lawyer, and I was finally fighting all this stuff like that. And finally ended up getting, uh, f- what, what's, it's, it's, it's four years with good time. Did you and, serve all that? Uh, no, I did too. Uh-huh. 22 months, something like that. And where, where were you? I was in a correctional facility in California. <laughs> Why are you leaning away from me? Well, you don't want to say which one? You know, we know what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to get my record expunged right now. Oh, okay. So, and oh, I, we like can't to, talk about it more? That's so disappointing. Yeah, but that, that's, we can talk about it, but I just don't want to exactly say where and what Okay, fair doing. enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. So, uh, did you kick in jail then? I kicked in jail twice. Okay. I went in and kicked originally. Mm-hmm. And then later, because uh, there's copious amounts of drugs in jail, and I actually knew everybody in there. Mm-hmm. It was like old home week. Everybody you, you know, knew you know, them from just like the using. I know community. all the, they were all the runners from my from my drug dealers that mm-hmm. would deliver to my house, and mm-hmm. all these other people and people from the streets. Other people I know there. Reunion. What? Reunion. Reunion. So was it yeah, not so. that bad then being in? 
Uh, well, you know, any kind of incarceration is unbelievable boredom. Long right, periods of right. incredible boredom. And then on top of it all, there's just punctuated by incredible moments of, of, of violence. Right. And so, if, you know, it, it's so you're just like there for like the duration, sitting around doing absolutely nothing, and then you're just like, oh, my, oh you know, all oh, bloody crazy things insane, yeah. or you're in a fight or something like that. So it, it, it wasn't that you didn't, you know, well, th- thankfully I was in that kind of headspace. I was crazy, I was a criminal, I was a drug addict. It wasn't that bad. Nowadays, I would have a little much harder time. Yeah. You know, and plus I wouldn't know everybody. And how are you getting heroin in jail? Uh, do you really want to hear the graphics? Yeah, but I mean, if it's a cool... What about getting your record expunged? No, there's, that, that, okay. there's, there's the graphic, because I wasn't doing it. What happens is that uh, people swallow balloons of heroin. When, and, though? Uh, when they're getting arrested. When they're getting arrested, So okay. a lot of drug dealers have balloons in their mouth, and balloons just a hit of heroin. No, I, that graphic. part I know. That part you know. Yeah, yeah so, what, so the reason it's in a balloon is you swallow it, and yeah. then you can shit it out. Yeah, of course. They and then they pick, the shit, they pick the shit out, and then they sell it to you in jail. And the worst part is there's still that scent of it Okay, 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 okay. We need, we need to talk about that. <laughs> when I used to do coke from this one dealer who... Mm-hmm. Uh, like it was brought up in the ga- gas tanks from Mexico. Right, it right. Was always right. like in, it was basically like right. snorting gasoline. Oh, so nice, call it. nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, and that's it. So and then, and then then it's unbelievably cheap in jokes. They're just trying to get rid of it so you can you're trading a cup of soup and a candy bar for it or something like that. Right. And just like I got huge strung out there again. I went to court one day and my lawyer said, "What are you doing coming to court loaded?" Because I was nodding out in court. Yeah. And that didn't look good to the judge. He said, no. "Stop doing that." And I said, okay, I stopped doing it. So. And did they know you were a drug addict? It doesn't make a difference. When you're robbing banks, they're not like, oh, I just know you're an addict. Go to- In- interestingly yeah. enough, I, I, I was also charged with uh, uh, possession when I when I got busted. And uh, when it, we started going to court, they dropped the possession charge because they didn't want me getting a treatment uh, deferment. Right. And they wanted me to, 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 to not be able to use that. So, no, and I never said I was a drug addict to them because I just didn't want to go there with it. It was pretty obvious because I was sick as hell. Yeah, and then, yeah. And then uh, 30 days later, I had a grand mal seizure from all the uh, benzos I was taking, which I didn't know that happened. Yeah. You know, it's so, like things like that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Only one seizure in your history? One really bad seizure, yeah. Yeah. yeah seven ODs, but one bad seizure. Let's talk about the ODs. Okay. When were those happening? They were happening the whole time I was using... Uh, throughout the throughout throughout them, uh, my one relapse came after the uh, rehab, and then seven times in there. Uh, uh, throughout throughout my throughout my career as a junkie, and all of them, almost all of them, took Narcan to bring me back to life. Uh-huh. Uh, maybe several shots of Narcan. That's not yeah. naltrexone. That's uh, whatever they whatever they whatever they call the stuff they're using now. The cops are using to. to I thought it was naltrexone. I'm I, I, yeah. I'm terrible at names. I yeah. think I'm. It, it could be something new now, but in my day, it was called nar- nar- narcane. And and somebody like uh, in like a, a, ER person yeah, yeah, ER, always yeah, gets EMT, a shot. Yeah, EMT person. I mean, a couple of times, uh, friends of mine dragged me around the room and threw cold water on me and woke me up and stuff like that. But those were mild ones, but the, mainly I was totally dead, and they brought me back to life. So ambulance, somebody would call an ambulance? Ambulances, ambulances would show up at your house, the cops would be there, then they'd drag you down to the, to the SF General and yeah. bring you back to life. And when you'd come to, would you go, never again? Or, or? No, I would want to try to get home because Narcan... Uh, uh, Makes you go into immediate withdrawal, so I want to get home and shoot some more. Wow. <laughs> That's how bad it was. And so then you get sober at the Salvation mm-hmm, Army. Mm-hmm. You start going to meetings. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And did the desire to do drugs get removed? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it, it was pretty horrible the last the last year. Uh, with the 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 uh, the last uh, uh, 
between the two rehabs, when I went to the, the behavior modification rehab, and then I got out, I, I relapsed in it. That was my last relapse. And I OD'd, and I did all this other stuff like that. But then I had six months of using while parole was trying to catch me, and all this other craziness was going on. And it was, uh, I couldn't get high. I couldn't, it didn't matter how much drugs I did. I couldn't get high enough. I was in anxiety the whole time. I was freaking out because I knew parole was coming to get me. I was going back to prison. All these things were happening. So uh, basically, uh, I, I, uh, uh, I, I that there was it wasn't like there was moments you're thinking of oh the good times mm-hmm. that was six months of hell mm-hmm. and it, that was really a reminder of, of why I didn't want to be this anymore. I had almost eighteen almost almost two almost two years uh, clean uh, mm-hmm. before that, which I give from the home. behavior modification yeah, program. Yeah, and so th- and so th- this was like you know and, and life was pretty good then it was really decent yeah. it wasn't bad you know I mean I, it was the first time I had a you know a, a decent job and a girlfriend and things were going good you mm-hmm. know and. Uh, that that relapse, you know, even though I wasn't in recovery, so to speak, that relapse was just horrible. It was mm-hmm. just horrible, and that that sort of served as me. If I ever need to roll the tape of how you know how horrible it was, it, that relapse, relapse started with me ODing, waking up in the ER and yeah. going from there. Wow! <clears throat> First night. First night. That's it. I went out. I went out to the junkie thing. I went out and bought the regular dope and a needle on, on the street. Went home and shot it, and it was the usual what I did two years before that, four years before that. Yeah. And it was uh, it was too much for me. I fell out. And your parents, the nice MIT professor. What is he? Are they not speaking to you? Have they cut off contact? Or no, I, I have. A, I have. A, they, both. Both of my family. Both of my parents are really uh, supportive and really good uh, mm-hmm. for everything, and have been there for me incredibly. And uh, mm-hmm. my dad uh, has just been there, just incredibly. My dad uh, was was the reason I went, went back to school and got my MFA, and my, all, all these other things like that. So you know, once I my you know my family was pr- pretty good about never. Turn their back on me. You know, at some point they had to. I was just so out there crazy. But I was like an MIA too. No one knew where I was. So you didn't go through the robbing your family phase. No, no, I did the the light robbery where like I don't have money for rent. Can I? Can you lend me money for rent? Which I never paid back. But I never took went and stole from them. You yeah, know, kind of like that. Yeah, you know, which I'm justifying it. But you know, <laughs> it's a little different than just robbing your family. Well, uh, yeah, you know? there are many people. Have been many people who sat no. in that chair who cannot say the same thing. Right. So. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I can't say that about friends and other people. I mean, I yeah. totally did that to them. You know, like that for some reason, just you know, the, the moral ground of robbing my family never came up. So you know? and so you get clean. You're in San Francisco. Francisco. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when did you make your way down to LA? Well, I mean, I, that was that was uh, eight years later. Mm-hmm. I started going to M- I went to a low residence MFA school down here, mm-hmm. Antioch University. Mm-hmm. I did that, and that's did what you Antioch. Down. Yeah. So, where Antioch. you teach now? Uh, I teach online there. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, I I came down here, and I had been here years ago when my friend was murdered, and all these other things going on. And I always liked LA, even those yeah. parts about it. And I came down here, and I found a whole new uh, kind of support group, and things were happening, and a, a really good, vibrant literary community mm-hmm. that I didn't know LA had, and got hooked up really quick. Yeah, you're all in the like Jerry Stahl mm-hmm. crowd. Mm-hmm. Who else is in that? Uh, Rob Robert is in there. Uh, is, is Dan Fonte? Dan Fonte's in there. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan Shaw's in there. Uh, I know him. You know, uh, Artie Shaw's kid. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, and. Uh, oh, Anyway, yeah, that's okay. fine. no, it's all good. <laughs> and then what's his name? Oh, this guy he used to write for me at the Fix. He was great. I James can't... Brown. No, no, but I know James, um, and he's great too. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I'm blanking on his name. He writes lots of dark stuff. He's not sober. He's not into being sober. Oh, okay. It's really you know, which is a great perspective. Mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people think that like even this podcast is about you got to be sober, right? 
or right. that that sober people think you know everybody's got to be sober mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh you know look i'm all for if other things work right you know um if let's say you're able to somehow well first of all if you're able to like if you're you were doing drugs and you're able to drink normally mm-hmm. Yeah. All, t- you know. My hat is off to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Do you know people? Well, I'm imagining, you know, a lot of people who did not survive doing no, drugs. A lot of people did not survive. All my best friends are gone. Yeah. 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 And how many of them are in jail? Uh, you know, like, not that many. Okay. A lot of people, but a lot of people I know from jail uh, are, uh, are still back there. Are doing, yeah. are doing life and stuff like that. So they never got out of that kind of situation. What about the people that you used with who got sober? How many of them are there? You know, more and more showing up, and it's kind of amazing. You know, yeah. you, know, you lose touch with them because, you know, you're just not there, and then all of a sudden they sort of show up and stuff like that. And then also people I was in rehab with are showing up to, you know, coming, getting their stuff together and like that. But I can count the number of people I used with on one hand that are get clean. Yeah. You know, so it's not a whole lot of them around no. there because there's not a whole lot of them left. Yeah. I was also in the punk rock scene. It's a very nihilistic scene. A lot of people died young, really badly. Yeah. You know, not really badly, but, you know. Yeah. The same bad way. Exactly. Exactly. Not cheerfully. Yeah. You know, so yeah. 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 And so then how long after getting sober so you were like I'm gonna get sober am I gonna do music did you want to be a writer then well no I, I, I started I started writing when I was locked up mm-hmm. I started writing as a journalist and I wrote there was an adult education class and I started writing then I wasn't a very good writer beforehand as because I, I'm dyslexic so mm-hmm. I have problems you know transposing words and stuff like that thank God for computers because they make everything wonderful you and don't so have I'm, a single your copy comes in perfect I, 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 it, it's, it just works for me absolutely because I, I could see it that way for some reason my handwriting and everything like that I'll, yeah. just, I'll just look at letters and words they just don't look right yeah. and also I've, I've trained myself with years I used to do crossword puzzles and stuff just trying to get my vocabulary back up because yeah. I was pretty much illiterate by the time I got to uh, I got to jail but you went to yeah. you'd gone to college I had a BFA in unfit from the Sam Scott Institute, so uh-huh. I, I got that before it all sort of went south. Yeah, you know, and that's sort of where the music scene sort of came up in San Francisco anyway. Yeah, and so I was I was in rehab, and I started working for the rehab uh, as the receptionist at the front desk at the like, Salvation Army. Yeah, my mm-hmm. big job, mm-hmm. and uh, they paid me minimum wage. It was the first job I'd had in hundred years, and uh, some uh, friend of a friend of mine worked as a counselor at another rehab and came by and said, uh, "You ever thought about doing this for a living?" I was like, "Hell no, I don't want to do this for a living." Yeah. And he got me an interview, and I was a, turned. I became a counselor at drug rehab for six years. Oh, I didn't know that. <clears throat> yeah. But what about that piece you wrote about uh, the counselor who said to you, basically, you got to have like a sober job your whole life, right? And right. you going, that's bullshit. <laughs> exactly. I can do whatever yeah. I want. Yeah, exactly. So, but did that happen at the Salvation Army? No, that was the behavior modification place. Yeah. And their whole thing with behavior modification was that you couldn't be who anything you were before. Yeah. You shouldn't dress that way. You shouldn't listen to the same music. You shouldn't do anything like that. It's like, yeah. oh, it's just horrible. It's horrible. Don't be you. Don't yeah. be you. Yeah, and don't you know? don't allow sobriety to give you the big life that, no. No. you know, you no. deserve. Well, because their version of it was that you would get, you know, the 2.5 kids, and you would live in the suburbs, and you would have a nice job, and you'd have this nice wife, and you'd, buy, you'd drive a... You know, a rambler. I don't know. You know, it's just. It crazy. sounds like Scientology, practically. It felt like it. It felt like it. But that's what those sort. That's what they. They're sort of about. They're sort of about you know squashing your soul. Mm-hmm. And that's what sort of that, that, that that's what I feel that that behavior modification really comes down to. Wow. You know, and I, you know they sit there and scream at you and yell at you and like you're wrong, you're an idiot, you're, you're an asshole. And like I knew those things already. I didn't yeah. hear it from somebody else. You know, yeah. It wasn't helpful. You know. 
And so then you, when did it all start coming together? Did you like being a counselor? Uh, you know, being a counselor kept me clean. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that did kept me clean and sober. And I was able to, you know, uh, have integrity about what I did. And I was able to actually help people get out of my head. And, you know, I was, you know, the money wasn't awesome, but, it, you know, it sort of gave me a purpose. And the whole time I kept writing. Mm-hmm. And at one point the feds came in and said, people who work in recovery forget funded from us have to have credentials. Yeah. And they wanted me to go get a KDAC or something Yeah, like I was that. in school for that. Yeah. And I and I was like, do I really want to keep doing this? Yeah. And that's when I got in touch with my dad. And I said, what, I, what do you think is going on here? You know, MIT professor, tell me what you think education-wise. Yeah. And he says, why don't you go do what you want to do? Yeah. And I'd never heard anybody say that to me before. Go do what you want to do. I've heard people say it to me the wrong way. Yeah. You know, but, yeah. <clears throat> and, uh, and I said, really? He goes, yeah. And he and I, uh, said, I'll help you out. And I, I applied to uh, uh, three uh, major MFA programs uh, mm-hmm. and got accepted all but one which is like the major one in America that and, uh, Iowa uh, yeah I didn't get accepted to Iowa yeah. but I, a new school in New York in Antioch and I said do I want to uproot myself and go to New York with no money or do I want to just do MFA in LA and I went I'm going to go to LA yeah and it was awesome and how long ago was that that was 2006 2008 I graduated mm-hmm. and 2009 I moved down here mm-hmm. with a thousand dollars in my pocket and how did you make that work <laughs> I just knew this is what I wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and because of the program, because of everything else, and, and, and the support of other people, I just sort of like swallowed my fears and just decided to do it. And it's what I want to do, and I want to make it happen. And I wasn't feeling, you know, people might get upset with this, but I wasn't feeling a literary connection in, in San Francisco or the support of the community. Yeah. And I was having a hard time finding a teaching job up there. Yeah. And I just saw down here there were a lot more of them, and I thought, you know, I'd just be down here, I'd be involved, and I'd come down, I'd just do it, and I did. It's interesting. I didn't find a literary community when I lived in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and God, does it have the PR of having a literary community. Right. There's the Grotto, and yeah. Dave Eggers is there, yeah, 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 and yeah, all this yeah, stuff, and yeah. I never, I started never found it no, I never I, I never minded I never got into it never felt accepted by it at all yeah there's a bigger one not happening in Oakland with more disfranchised people that seem to be a little bit cooler right mm-hmm. now but still mm-hmm. you know not compared to what's going down here I never thought of LA as a literary city yeah you know it's like we have New York and that's a literary city and blah 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 you know kind of like that and I came out here and I was just blown away by who, how many people are down here and what they're doing and yeah. You know, what's going on, the readings every night and things like that happening. It's really I know, cool. I it's know. Really cool. You sort of think of the Fitzgerald, like, you know, you, you're very literary, right. you come out here and you, you know, Sell die, your soul, right? basically. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you yeah. know, there are a whole lot of writers here who are not turning oh, yeah. on screenplays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and not that the, those people aren't great no, and talented in many ways. Absolutely not. Um, speaking of which, do you do, is there talk about your? I know it's not out yet, but your mm-hmm. book being optioned. I can see that it's being read right now. Yeah, yeah. So it's because pretty interesting. I'm 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 not opposed to it. Anybody out there that wants it? Yeah. <laughs> hey, you heard it here first. I mean, that's a story. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's uh, it's 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 a little bleak. Well, know? not in the end. Yeah. Well, you know, my book got published first in, in France. That's right. And uh, uh, the French uh, saw it. And there's a, ma- there's a great press over there that just folded. And I was really sad to see them go because the 13th, you know, it was a really amazing press. They they publish all these uh, all-American bad boys over there. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, they, they read my book and they said, you know, we really don't want the second half of this book. It's not interesting with it, with the, where he gets clean. It's horrible. Get rid of that right. part. And so they just published the, the first part, which is just all the, the, the bad stuff. Uh-huh. It's really interesting because that's more French. That's just they, they don't want a happy ending. Yeah, they want the noir. It's that's 
I, well, I had this happen on a very <clears throat> different level, like Kindle singles. I don't know if you know what those are, but these are these short books that Amazon assigns yeah. to people. Yeah. And, and I did one and it was an amazing experience and mm-hmm. it sold better than any, you know, yeah. actual printed book that I ever did came out. Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh yeah. It was the best experience ever. And then I did another one and the editor insisted on me truncating mm-hmm. and cutting out the conclusion right. that was, you know, it's always like torturous and torturous 90% mm-hmm. of it. And then the 10% is like the, why I'm telling you all of this. Right. Right. And it was awful. I'd never had, you know, book mm-hmm. editors, I don't know what yours are like, but they're really, je- you know, after writing for magazines mm-hmm. where I would write stories and then have them completely, you have to rewrite them six times and right. then have them completely rewritten. And then right. me seeing it in a magazine and going, oh shit, my name's still on that. And that's not anything that I wrote. <laughs> you know, I right. remember my first book, my editor going, you know, Anna, we're going to need some changes. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay, yeah, page one rewrite. And it was sort of like right. page 236. Right. You know, can you flush that out? I mean, right. I've been shocked at how generous the book editors right. tend to be. Right. Yeah, in terms of letting you keep your mm-hmm. voice and oh, everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Was that disappointing that the French publication didn't want the other part? Well, you know, I said no at first. Mm-hmm. I said, we're not going to do this. And then, and then like six months later, they came back to me and said, come on, we want to read your book. And like that, we want to do, do this thing. And I was having no success in America, none mm-hmm. at all. And uh, and so I just said, yeah, let's do it. Let's mm-hmm. and, and they gave me some really good edits on, on it, which I used in the, in the English version, mm-hmm. which isn't... It's not really the English version anymore. It's totally been changed. Yeah. My editor, at uh, um, Guy Nachi at uh, uh, Dezank, Dezank Books, he uh, uh, he wrote like amazing stuff. He, I mean, he just really just got in there and really dig deep. He did you know dig deeper, all that stuff like mm-hmm. that you don't want to hear, and it was mm-hmm. like amazing. You know? Yeah. And he found the ending of my book, which I went past about hundred pages. Yeah, <laughs> do that. Uh, my first book, I didn't know what I was doing. I wrote it. And then I had one friend who published books, and I was out with her, and she said, you know, I knew nothing when I started. I didn't even know books had a three-act structure. And I'm right. like, books have a three-act three act structure. structure? And I go home, and I look, and I've got 400 pages in one act. And I'm like, right. okay, there, I've got 300 right, pages, right, right. you know? Yeah, yeah. Cause you just, but that's the mistakes we make to learn. Yeah, and that's yeah. how you do it. You know? Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but I think uh, this whole this whole podcast is pretty much about the mistakes I've made to learn. Yes, it <laughs> is. Know? It is. That could be the tagline, um, right? Yeah, it's true. I mean, that's that's the only way, right? Yeah. You know, and yeah. it's it's sort of like desperation is the only way I'm willing to learn too. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. You know, because that's how it came down to. Yeah. You know, and and. It had to get pretty desperate for yeah. me. For me. I, was, I was like, it's okay. It's, there's, there's one wheel left. I can do this. What about desperation to change in, in sobriety? You know, if you get so miserable. In well, I, I have. I've gotten miserable in society. When I moved down here, I kind of put my program behind and sort of like, you know, uh, I didn't have didn't get a new sponsor and sort of lost touch with my sponsor in San Francisco. I went to like a couple meetings a week. I was freaking out because I was like trying to get a job. I was running out of money. Things were happening. And I started having anxiety attacks, which I'd never had in my life. Well, I had. I had them before when I thought the police were coming to arrest me right. in those days. But this was, you know, this was nine years later, you know, and I was like You're kind not of drug induced. Yeah. yeah. And, <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, uh, I, I realized that my program had suffered. Things weren't happening. Things weren't working. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I went back. I, I, I got in touch with my sponsor up north. We, we reunited and so on and so forth. I started going to, you know, I was going to go to a meeting a day here. I started working the steps. I started doing everything again. And lo and behold, my life got better, you know, and mm-hmm. like that. And then there's other things, you know, I've just, you know, with the eating. I, I've, uh, you know, trying to find a, a medium where I don't have to deal with it in a, an unsuccessful way that I haven't dealing with before. And I was talking about it, putting mm-hmm. it out there, changing my diet, doing other things. Mm-hmm. And all, all of it. And I feel, for me anyway, especially in 12-step program, is that I'm not content with just what's the status quo. I've got to keep evolving. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So what's next? Are you writing another book? Writing right? another book, writing about all the times I was a road manager with all the drug addicts and mm-hmm. like that. And then I'm writing some fiction thing, which I don't know what it is. I have no mm-hmm. idea. I can't mm-hmm. tell. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know what's next. But there will always be something happening, that's for sure. What about music? Uh, well, you know, I, I, I finally recorded a CD in 2006, which was amazing because I've been talking about recording CD forever. I'm still writing; it just comes and goes. Mm-hmm. I'm also making films, yeah. which, which I haven't, which I hadn't, which I really hadn't done since film school in '79. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so, doing those kind of things, you know, it, that it, it's the beauty of it all right now is I, I can do anything I want in a lot of ways. Yeah, which is a lot different before when I was really. You know, corralled or, or just stuck in not doing anything. Yeah. You know? So, you know, I, I don't know. You know, things things are open. Things are totally open, and I'm really really happy about that. You know. That's such a good note to end on, don't you think? I agree. Okay, thank you so much. So that was Patrick O'Neill on After Party Pod. Uh, look him up. He's got a Facebook fan page. He's on the Twitter. Look up his book, Gun Needle Spoon reserve your copy and as always thank you for listening to this podcast please keep listening reviewing subscribing all of that and um we'll see you next time